Welcome to The Sages Among Us. What makes a community great? Most importantly, it's the people who live and work there and are engaged in community life. The Sages Among Us focuses on those people, what they do and why they do it, and celebrates the leadership, time, and energy they bring to making a positive difference for all of us. And indeed, welcome to The Sages Among Us, a live broadcast. I'm Keith Porter in the studio, and my guest this evening, also in the studio, live right here with me, is Mark Leviton. Mark is a retired music industry executive, music critic, he's a writer, he's the host of the music show on KVMR called Pet Sounds, and he's a proud new grandpa. That's hey, right. Mark, welcome to the hot seat. <laughs> Thank you very much. Hey, you're uh, an interviewer extraordinaire uh, uh, in all kinds of ways, but uh, this is the first time you've been interviewed. Is, am I right about yeah, that? Yeah, well, one of the one of the a few times. I, one of the few. When I was in the record business, if somebody wanted to interview them, uh, interview me, I was so nervous I would write the, down quotes and hand them to them and say, you could run these in their newspaper if you want to, but I don't want to be interviewed. <laughs> Well, we got you this time, by yeah. golly. We, we captured you, and, uh, man, we're going to learn all about your life and your times and uh, uh, all your experience in the music industry. Uh, man, what a, what a varied and interesting uh, life you've had so far. Thank you. Hey, uh, and the show is about your work and how you contribute to our community. But let's start by uh, going back and find out a little bit more about your background. You were born and grew up in the San Fernando Valley, Southern California, with a younger sister, a stay-at-home mom. Your father, who had an MBA from UCLA, and has spent his uh, working career with the International Ladies Garment Workers Union. So That's a union right. guy. Yep. So what was most memorable to you about your childhood? Well, the sunshine. Uh, <laughs> growing up in Southern California, it just okay. seemed like any time you wanted to plan anything, it was going to happen because you never had to stop because it was raining or anything like that. And uh, I just remember that feeling of uh, being able to fly a kite in the front yard. Uh, I used to set up a tent sometimes in the front yard, and my mother would bring me strawberries, fresh strawberries and cream. And, wow. you know, it, it, it just was an idyllic uh, situation as far as I'm concerned. So did you ever fly your kite in? To a power line? Uh, I may have lost a few uh, <laughs> boomerangs here or there, uh, f throwing them over buildings that didn't come back, but uh, I don't think I ever lost a kite. Well, good for you. <laughs> uh, you said that you came to think of yourself as eccentric. Yeah, tell us about that. Why? <clears throat> well, you know, every kid wants to fit in, and I think I did my best, but, you know, not being athletic, a lot of things were about. Uh, whether you could play baseball well and stuff. And I right. tried, but I wasn't so good at that. So I wasn't in with the jocks uh, ever. Um, also, uh, I was very aware that uh, if everybody else was celebrating Christmas, we were one of the few Jewish families in the, in the neighborhood, and we wouldn't be celebrating that. In fact, I can remember a teacher coming to my mom and saying, could Mark be in, uh, play a shepherd in the Christmas uh, pageant this year? You know, How, how did uh, that work out? Uh, I did do it. Oh, good for you. <laughs> um, well, those, those folks were all Jewish, right? <laughs> That's right. I guess originally. <laughs> but, you know, trying to, trying to another way to fit in. But I, I have to say, uh, I, I guess I got the impression that uh, what was on the surface of life was not all there was. And I can, one of the strongest things was going to work with my dad occasionally. He would take me down to his office uh, downtown uh, uh, in the garment district. And I remember once he took me around collecting dues from Schwetz, uh, the, the sweat uh, shops. And I saw people working in back-breaking you know, labor at, at, uh, at their jobs in the sewing machines in terrible uh, conditions, uh, even though these were union workers. And I just remember thinking like, oh, these are the people that make our clothes. You know, th this, is, this is not what you see when you go into a, a very nice uh, department store and buy, buy a shirt. 
Wow. And I saw my mother was also a seamstress and made things at home. So uh, that was I just sort of developed that attitude, and eventually I started to gravitate toward the uh, counterculture musicians and writers and people like that too. So that that also gave me that feeling that a lot of people had in the '60s of, you know, what they're telling you isn't isn't true. Yeah. So watch. Huh? So um, you 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 said that uh, that involvement you're you're touching uh, in your early life uh, those aspects of life uh, for union workers uh, led you to support civil rights and other progressive causes. Um, how how did that influence your childhood and youth? I mean, that would have put you in a in a category that maybe again not the jocks and maybe not the in crowd, but uh, people on a little little bit of a trajectory. Yeah, well, tangential. you know, I, I was living in an in an area that actually was redlined. Uh, you know, where um, the Latino or Mexican American, <laughs> mostly uh, families and the black families were not allowed to live in the white neighborhoods even though they were uh, mixing in the um, uh, General Motors plant, which was very close by. It was one of the biggest employers um, of black people in Los Angeles when I was growing up. But So I was aware of that, and as I went to junior high, I went to uh, Pacoima Junior High and started to, um, you know, get get out of the, uh, the the strictly white part of the neighborhood, and that, and that changes your attitude when you start really uh, mixing with other kinds of people. Uh, did you uh, experience any kind of, uh, I guess redlining wasn't the case, but any kind of discrimination as a Jewish uh, kid? Yeah, yeah, every so often, you know, somebody uh, would, uh, another Jewish kid would lean over and say, uh, hey, you know, that, uh, watch out for that teacher. He doesn't, he doesn't like Jews. Really? You know? Yeah. But I, I would say I was actually probably lucky in that way. And my parents were kind of a, a pioneers because a lot of Jewish families ended up moving to the San Fernando Valley. And so they all funded a lot of new synagogues and civic centers and things like that. And, uh, you know, so by the time I was 10 or 11, uh, a lot of those Jewish institutions existed that weren't there when I was, you know, younger. Okay. So um, you uh, made it through high school, uh, attended college. Uh, how, how did that work out? Yeah, well, going to UCLA, I, I, I got into Columbia University, and I wanted to go to one of these highfalutin places like Yale or Harvard, where all my friends got in, because I had a lot of very brainy friends. But, yeah. uh, but I got into Columbia, and I really wanted to go, and my parents basically said, you're not going across the whole country. Uh, <laughs> they were from Massachusetts, and they didn't want to go. <laughs> they, they came to California to get away from uh, what they thought is... Uh, uh, strictures of New England. Ah. So uh, anyway, uh, I was kind of not too happy that I had to live at home and go to UCLA, but it turned out to be a tremendous experience. UCLA was a fantastic uh, school and a fantastic environment uh, from the time I got there in 1970. Cool. Well, let's back up a little bit, because I know before you went to UCLA, you were in high school, and uh, your cousin Arnie, he was a musician, he taught you guitar, took you to some, uh, and got you involved in some music theory and jazz standards and lessons and so forth, but you migrated to rock and roll and played in some bands in high school, and I guess in college, too. Uh, was rock and roll something that your parents supported, or was that kind of going rogue I, on your part? I, I think they didn't really know what it was about, but, you know, every family that watched the Ed Sullivan show in uh, February 64... Uh, had to deal with that. Every kid wanted to be in the Beatles suddenly or start a band. And I guess I was one of those too. Although, yeah, my cousin Arnie and, and other people, I'd already knew a lot of folk songs and things like that from him. So uh, music was not uh, something brand new. But uh, yeah, I was pretty nuts about music from a very early age. I had a bit part in Bye Bye Birdie a few years ago and we got to sing the song. 
we're going to be on Ed Sullivan. Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorite uh, 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 musicals, for uh, sure. Fun, fun, fun. <laughs> So and, and then you got started at age 15, I think. You, you were writing, you were in high school, you were writing news about high school for the local paper in the San Fernando Valley there. Right. Uh, they asked for a volunteer, and I volunteered, and I started writing about, oh, a congressman came to campus, or I remember this, the seniors had a... Um, a beard-growing contest, and I wrote about that. Really? So, but but semi-serious <laughs> stuff. I mean, you weren't just writing about the school activities. Oh, you know, what was the chess club doing and stuff like that. Whatever I could do. Yeah. Well, and then uh, they started to pay you for your writing by giving you promotional record albums that had been sent to the paper. This was the Valley News and Green Sheet in San Fernando Valley. And you got the okay to write reviews of the records. And uh, that really uh, that really started a career tra trajectory for you, didn't it? Yeah, I didn't know I was going to get paid, and getting paid in music was just turned out to be great. Um, the Green Sheet at that time probably had a circulation of about 300,000, so it was oh. not nearly as big as the LA Times or the Herald Examiner, but it's pretty big. And um, somebody noticed me writing about music and uh, sent me a list of all the people at the record companies to write to and get free, more free records. So I did that. <laughs> and um, then when I had all these records, I said, well, I should write some more stuff about music, not just for the green sheet. So I went to the uh, newsstand and I bought one of every music magazine I could see. And at that time, Rolling Stone had just started a magazine called Fusion and Boston had started. Cream magazine and uh, Detroit had started, I think. And I sent them all reviews just, you know, for, for, the, for the heck of it. And a lot of them got run. So I became a professional uh, music critic and I was still in high school. Wow. So uh, so these people who were receiving your reviews didn't know you were a kid. You were getting reviews published. Uh, you got one in Rolling Stone, right? Yep. I ended up in a book that they published. You earned 35 bucks for that. That must have been pretty heady stuff for a kid. Oh, yeah. My, I think my allowance at the time was maybe 50 cents a week, and I could, <laughs> I could get some more, uh, you know, pulling weeds or uh, yeah. doing the lawns or something. So, yeah, um, I finally had some pocket money from, from that kind of thing. And things were really cheap in Southern California at that time anyway. I think gas was 17 cents a gallon. Yeah, I can remember when it was in the teens, but uh, <laughs> it didn't stay that way very long. I'm Keith Porter. My guest today is Mark Leviton. He's a retired music industry executive, critic, writer, uh, host of the music show Pet Sounds on KVMR, proud new grandpa, so we got a lot more to talk about. Uh, but uh, jumping way ahead in life, I, I know you had a, something that you recorded. You talked about... Uh, how you were bothered for years about the fact that you, you, you generally tended to write pretty caustic and mean uh, reviews, I think, uh, you, to use my words, maybe not yours. But you wrote a, what you called a nasty review about somebody, and, uh, and that bothered you for years. And then late, later somebody said you should maybe apologize for that, and you did. And yeah, tell us about that. Yeah, I kept telling people this was a review that ran in 1970 in Rolling Stone. And uh, I was just unnecessarily negative. It, it, it's not a good album that I reviewed, but I was very, very mean. And I guess I had found out at the time that you kind of got a lot of attention. It was kind of like being class clown in a way when yeah. sometimes you resort to that just for attention. And writing negative reviews was something that you could get attention for. So, um, yeah, I kept telling people over the years, 10 years later, 20 years later, 30 years later, oh, I really regret that review. Oh, my goodness. And finally, a friend of mine said, well, just apologize to the guy. <laughs> and I said, really? And this is like 45 years later. And uh, I looked him up. He was still alive. Uh, he was in New York. And I wrote him a, an email and said, uh, hey, I'm really sorry about what I said about you in Rolling Stone in 1970. And he wrote me back a nice 
kind of uh, very hippie kind of a thing. It was like, uh, love hey, you, man, yeah, I love you. It's all <laughs> part of the journey and that kind of thing. And so um, that was really nice. And, you know, I had already kind of gotten rid of, uh, rid of a lot of the negativity in my writing at that point, but that was still out there bothering me. But it was it was a really wonderful thing to be so, able to c find closure on that. <laughs> so you had mellowed over time. Uh, you, what, why? What would you do, say caused you to change uh, from being quite so negative as a youngster? Well, it, it was just like I got to the point where I had written so many things, uh, I decided, why not just write things that I, that I love or that I want to recommend? Why, why is it necessary to snipe at things and to tell people what isn't good? It just didn't fit with my kind of outlook on life anymore. And maybe negativity had become such a big thing in the uh, music business and the movie business. You know, when I started, there weren't that many music critics at the major newspapers there were, but there weren't the kind of magazines. There was no Entertainment Weekly. There were no People magazines. We didn't have that kind of celebrity culture. Right. And so the negativity just got to me, and I just decided probably in the mid-'80s or so, just just share your enthusiasms and don't worry about uh, warning people away. Let somebody else have that job. Right. <laughs> well, out of college, you ended up uh, uh, managing a Rhino record store that was co-founded by a bandmate of yours, Harold Bronson, at UCLA. Yep. So that was uh, must have been a big step into the business world. Huh? Yeah, well, it was odd because when I graduated from UCLA, I really I was an English major, which is typical for, Not you know. Not music, huh? No, no. Uh, well, to be in the music department, you had to know how to p play piano. And uh, uh, even though I wanted to, I couldn't get into that uh, that program. That okay. was for real musicians. Oh, really? Uh, I was more a bystander. Okay. Um, but, Com commentator. Uh, <laughs> I, I was absolutely a commentator, even though I was an amateur musician, I guess you could say. Um, but when I graduated, I didn't really have any skills. And my, uh, I, I moved out to Claremont, California, which is a little nice little college town suburb. And my girlfriend was going to um, graduate school there. And she said, you know, there's no, it's a college town with no record store. Why don't you ask your friends uh, Richard and Harold if they want to start a record store out here? And so that became my job out of college was managing the record store for them. I didn't know that Rhino Records was going to turn into a uh, a huge uh, record label and a, a you know uh, an important uh, reissue label. Oh, sounds like a lot of things have kind of opened for you, uh, just kind of uh, the gates, right? Uh, I kind of I kind of feel like uh, I, I've kept myself open to experience and to things happening and. Uh, I don't deserve a lot of credit sometimes for walking through the doors. A lot of people open the doors for me, but uh, yeah, that's a uh, that's a great attitude <laughs> in life, in my view. I think that's uh, that's that's a smart way to go through life. Other other people might say that I am ambitious, and I just don't want to admit it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll 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 take the high road. <laughs> So uh, then eventually Warner Music uh, brought, bought Rhino Records, and then you worked for Warner for 20 years or so. And what you've called the perfect job for you. Tell us about the work you did, the albums you compiled, the movies you licensed music to, the artists you met and worked with. My right. Goodness. Well, I went to work for Warner in 1979, and basically it was to put together these compilation albums that were sold on TV, um, you know, through 1-800 numbers right. in the middle of the night. And uh, that was my main job. But then I created a bigger job. Um, and I started to represent all the catalogs for Warner, Electra, and Atlantic Records in uh, licensing their music. And I started to develop a business in television and movies. So the first movie I worked on 
was The Big Chill, which was kind of a watershed in that a lot of the younger directors had started to put rock and roll into their movies and to make movies about that period. So uh, Martin Scorsese and uh, Barry Levinson and a lot of these directors started to use a lot of our material and I started to promote it more and more, hire more and more people at the company to do those jobs. Um, we started to do albums with Time Life. I spent a lot of time um, inducing Time Life to go into the rock and roll business because they had only sold uh, co compilations of jazz and, and light classical and things like I, that. I've, I've played a number of those compilations on Red Eye Radio right here in this studio right. from so, four, midnight to 4 a.m. So the rock and roll era mm -hmm. series, which was 55 albums uh, on Time Life, was my conception, and I sold the idea to them. And then our division produced about 50 of the 55. I think last time I looked, they had uh, sold 18 million copies of the whole series wow. so i did a lot of that and um you know I, I expanded it overseas too i decided that all the all the uh warner companies around the world should also be trying to get their songs into commercials and things like that and it, that turned out to be something also that um like in england there were a series of jeans commercials that made benny king go to number one again and percy sledge go to number one again so i was a part of that um, spreading of music beyond just radio and going more and more into movies and other ways to expose the music and get hits. So, you know, I worked on Miami Vice, Moonlighting, uh, you know, um, Northern Exposure, uh, uh, Malcolm was... in the Middle, you know, um, these shows used more, uh, Beverly Hills 902, you know, every show. Northern Exposure was one of my favorites. Remember the, I remember the episode with a guy that got hit by a satellite and they buried him in a coffin with all these projections sticking out of it? Right. That right. was hilarious. Yeah. So, so it was a great job for me because I just got to uh, uh, sit around, think up ideas for albums, and, uh, and make all these connections in the movie business, and, and, which I also loved. And, well, so drop a few names. How many, who, who did you associate with in terms of artists? That we well, you know, you know, a, a lot of times I had to deal with the managers or the, um, the back, or, back or, or the lawyers, yeah. and so they're who I mostly know. But um, I also developed relationships with some of the artists directly, and uh, I'd say Judy Collins became one of my closest uh, uh, relationships. Uh, Maria Moldar, um, Felix Cavalieri from the Rascals uh, was very appreciative of what we did. And when they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, he mentioned our our division, keeping keeping his music alive and so forth. So, oh, cool. um, but a lot of the, you know, a, 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 along the way, all these kind of people, David Geffen, all these big names that you hear of, were also in my field of people that I didn't see very often, but they were a part of my world. People you rubbed elbows with. People that became billionaires later. So how how did you how did you manage to re, to leave all of that? Oh, Two thousand five, you retired early. I mean, that must have been kind of a hard decision to leave all of that. Yeah. Well, uh, it was one of those strange situations where I was now one of the biggest, the, the highest paid people around in the business, um, and they wanted to, um, you know, keep us but reduce our pay. And uh. at the same time, they made me an offer to retire early and essentially pay me like for three years at my current salary without me working. Well, guess what? Uh, <laughs> offer you couldn't refuse. So I didn't intend to uh, uh, to retire that early, but I couldn't do it. Uh, I couldn't make the economic argument the other way. So. Well, I never, I never had all those famous people I rode doubles with, but I had similar experience of retiring early. And I, you know, it makes a make an offer you can't refuse. Don't refuse it. Go oh, that's for it right. And, and take life wherever it goes from there. 
but for us, the good news is that brought you to Nevada City, right? So right. a little bit of culture shock coming to Nevada City, and, and oh, why yeah. Nevada City? And tell us about that transition. Well, it's odd. I, You know, when people tell stories about how they ended up in Nevada City, sometimes they seem very magical. And people tell all kinds of wild stories that I would they were drawn here by the vortex and things like that. Yeah. I kind of had a story like that. There was something about it. I just um, couldn't find a place to live in Northern California. I kept going to different communities and... Um, I wanted to go somewhere different than L.A., and a friend of mine was living in Grass Valley who used to work at Warner, and she said, well, I sold my house in Burbank for a gazillion dollars, and I, you know, moved to Lake Wildwood. Why don't you come up and see what, what it's like up here? I went and visited her, and I said, well, I don't, you know, I'm not sure Lake Wildwood is right for me, but let's drive around. And I went to a real estate agent, and uh, it, it was something about hitting Broad Street. As soon as I hit Broad Street... And, and this is the woo-woo part of it. Oh. It seemed to me like I was back in Claremont in California, in Southern California. Now, it has nothing to do with Claremont, California. But I think, actually, what it was was the air felt the same. Really? And I was very happy in Claremont. I loved Claremont. And I liked the trees in Claremont and stuff. So I think there was something about that that I sort of said to myself, I'm going to move here. And I didn't know anything about Nevada City. I mean, I didn't know there were nightclubs. I didn't know there were restaurants. I didn't know there was KVMR. But once I got here, I said, if I had known, this is the place I would have moved. So, uh-huh. I, so it's a little magical. Another another gate that opened just yep. the right time. Yep. I'm Keith Porter on The Sages Among Us. This evening, my guest is Mark Leviton. He's a retired music <laughs> industry executive, critic, writer, host of the music show Pet Sounds on KVMR, proud new grandpa. <laughs> we still got more to talk about, but we're running out of low on time here, so we're going to have to scoot along. Uh, but uh, d- did you miss city life uh, when you relocated? <clears throat> I would say um, I really got into what was up here. I went for a lot of hikes, uh, go see the wildflowers in the spring. And so I didn't really miss the city. Um, and, you know, I would I would go to San Francisco and go to concerts and things like that still occasionally. So I kept my hand in. Yeah. But, you know, um, I got used to the idea that w- it, when you came to a... Uh, a stop sign. If somebody wasn't going through quite fast enough, you didn't just honk your horn. Yeah. I re- or that when you go to the store, you talk to the checker about what's going on in your life. I really had to adjust to um, small town life, and I really uh, got to like it. I, I, I sometimes say there should be a sign uh, in front of Grass Valley and, and Nevada City that says, if you're, if you're in a hurry, you're in the wrong place. <laughs> go, go somewhere else. <laughs> so you're a regular broadcaster here. Your show is Pet Sounds uh, every Monday, right? Right. Why that name? And, uh, you know, what, tell us about the show a little bit. <clears throat> well, 1966, uh, the Beach Boys put out this album, Pet Sounds, and it just be, automatically became my favorite album. It is like Brian Wilson's tearing his heart out and putting it on display way beyond the um the surf and 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 car songs uh that he mostly had been doing up to that point and um the idea of pet songs the pet sounds you know your your favorite songs so when it came time for me to do uh, a show i just naturally kind of gravitated back to that 1966 uh idea you enjoy doing the show <laughs> oh i love doing the what, show what, and what's hard about it uh, what's hard about it is I I want to uh, make it sound like it's music of the '60s radio, which means sometimes I'll play you know Frank Sinatra followed by the Yardbirds followed by the Rolling Stones and stuff, and I'm not sure the audience always understands 
that's what radio used to sound like before it was divided up into genres. Yeah. Where, you know, now if you have a rhythm and blues station, that's all you hear on it. But when I grew up, you know, I heard all kinds of wacky things, blues records followed by, you know, Petula Clark. So um, I try to program it that way. And, and, you know, based on the phone calls I get, people want to talk about their own experience of seeing these bands and stuff. And so I, I really enjoy the relationship with the, with the listeners. So I think I'm doing it right. All right. Well, your partner, Victoria Stanton, she's a retired school psychologist, and she's also an active volunteer and contributor here, right here at KVMR also. So what motivates you both to give so much support to community radio? Uh, I think it's that feeling of uh, having roots. You know, um, she's originally from Scotland and uh, moved to the United States, and that was kind of a, a, a big change, too. It's not, you know, my, cha- my going from Southern California to Northern California uh, is not as big a change of that, but you know, I think uh, being involved with community things where you are really gives you those roots. Really um, uh, gives you a a place in the world, and that's what we all need. So I'm a reader of a national literary magazine called The Sun, and one day I was just reading along here, and I was surprised to see an in-depth interview in that magazine by none other than you. And then over time, I saw several more. So. Tell us uh, about, you know, who you've interviewed, what kinds of interviews you do, why you do it for this magazine, and, um, you know, why that's an important thing to yeah, do. Yeah, I did, you know, hundreds of reviews with music people and, um, and uh, writers and things over the years, screenwriters, uh, movie people. But I never had a venue to do anthropologists and psychologists and, uh, you know, politicians and so forth. And so I decided to target the sun after going to one of the retreats, which is actually where I met Victoria. Um, and I just kept uh, sending things in until they started to accept them. Um, I've done about 30 interviews at this point, and uh, uh, some of the very best ones, um, um, I think I interviewed um, was a psychologist, Esther Perel, who became very important much later. I really enjoyed that one. Uh, anthropologist named David Lancey was a very good interview. And uh, at one point I interviewed Donnie DeFranco, who's the only musician I've interviewed. And she actually liked the interview so much that she asked me to uh, work with her when she decided to write a memoir. So that turned into another job oh, for really? a while. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, so, so you, you've, got, you've got a couple of interviews coming up in the near future, right? In yeah. The yeah. So I, uh, in the next couple of months, I have one about constitutional amendments. That will a, be interesting. A law professor who has some very interesting ideas about how we can get out of the deadlock that we have and deal with the fact that uh, Jefferson said that we should rewrite the Constitution every 19 years. So we've we, we're we're a little slow. On we're that, a little slow. Um, there've been there've been five or six thousand um, uh, amendments uh, proposed, and we've only accepted twenty seven. So something's oh. wrong with the system. And then I also have an interview coming out about uh, foster care and the adoption system in the United States. And that's going to be a good one too. A couple of real personal questions here to close us off. Uh, any accomplishment or role in your life that you're especially pleased with or proud of? <laughs> wow. That's hard to say. Well, I suppose raising three kids who are all uh, talented in their own ways and are contributing to the world, they're all very different from each other, but maybe they represent aspects of myself I wasn't able to uh, develop on my, in my own uh, life. Um, so that's, that's a pretty big accomplishment, and now my daughter has a daughter. And oh, so uh, watching her uh, grow up 
Um, this youngster's name Phoebe. I her name is Phoebe. Oh, cool. So, uh, yeah, we FaceTimed with her today. So uh, <laughs> it's kind of amazing to, to think old? that you. How old uh, is she? She's uh, eight months old. Oh my! But she 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 sees us through the screen. Smiling and, you know, at you. Huh? These these modern kids, they know what's going on. Yep. Yep. Okay. She smiled. <laughs> Okay, so now to, to pretend I'm a journalist, I have to ask you the converse question. Anything you'd care to share about your life that in retrospect you'd do differently if you could do it all over again? Well, you know, I always think about this uh, on the Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur, where you're supposed to examine your life. And the thing I always come back to, and I've been doing this for my entire life, is just be kinder. Just be kinder to be people. Kinder. I find that to be a little difficult uh, at times where I'm, I can be very judgmental and uh, brusque. So, be, you know, I, I guess that's my only regret is should have been kinder more often. But, um, you know, today's, today's a new day. Okay, well, to bring us to the community, what would you do differently? What, if you had a, a genie in a bottle gave you one wish to change our community for the better, what would you wish for? Oh, well, I suppose um, we could do better listening to each other and uh, appreciating e each other's uh, similarities instead of our differences. I, I think that we forget that uh, our political differences seem so huge at times and our social differences and that we uh, all have some of the same basic needs to feel safe and to be loved. And appreciate each other. Yep. Yeah. I'm Keith Porter and my guest today on The Sages Among Us has been Mark Leviton, a retired music industry executive, music critic, writer, host of Pet Sounds on KMR, proud new grandpa. And a great guy to have in our community. So we're, we appreciate L.A.'s loss and your gain and the, the fact that Warner gave you, uh, what, three years of salary in order to make the transition? Hey, worked for us very well. Thank you so much for having me. You bet.